Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Madeline Rowan Davis. It's August 22nd, 2023. We're at Abbott Claim, Abbott Claim Vineyard in Carlton. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rich. Uh, first question is why wine? Um, well, it was uh, for me kind of an accident. I was um, out of college. I went to work uh, for a, a company that did uh, environmental consulting. And so uh, mainly wildlife biology research kind of stuff at the time um, pertaining to birds of prey. And uh, I had a friend visiting from the East Coast. We took wine tasting and had a really fun time at the Bonnie Dune tasting room, Bonnie Dune Vineyard tasting room in Bonnie Dune back then. Um, And kind of jokingly asked if they were hiring. <laughs> Which uh, the woman that served me, Margaret, she became a good friend years later, you know, over the years. But she um, she took me completely seriously and went and got the manager. <laughs> so I ended up um, actually applying and getting a weekend job pouring wine in the tasting room. Which I got sucked more and more into to where I was working seven days a week. And um, at one point my ecological consulting position had a break between projects and I ended up applying for a full-time opening that they had and got sucked in fully <laughs> to sales and marketing actually. I ran a 8,000 member wine club uh, for Bonnie Dune and uh, I stayed there for about eight years. Um, I loved it. It was a, a really um, great experience a lot of great creative people at that company. And then um, decided that I had seen enough of cubicles and the insides of offices and needed to get back outdoors. So um, that's how I transitioned into, into the vineyard. I uh, left Bonnie Dune and went to UC Davis to study viticulture. So many things to follow up on there, but we'll back up for a second. <laughs> Tell us about your life before wine, uh, where you're born and raised, and where, what kind of the path to college was for you. Um, so I was actually born in Canada. Uh, my mom was uh, an art student in Toronto and met my dad over there. And uh, we moved a few times before we came to Oregon. I mo- arrived in Oregon when I was five, so I did all my early education through high school in Eugene. Um, and then, uh, let's see, I went to undergrad back east, uh, Mount Holyoke College. It's a women's college on the East Coast, um, the oldest continuingly women's college in the US. And um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Com- coming out of that, what was, or at what point did the, sort of the environmental part of things come into line? What were you thinking about as like a long-term career coming out of college? Oh, gosh. Um, coming out of college, I had been fully focused on ecology and evolutionary theory. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I thought maybe the only path that made sense would be to be a professor mm-hmm. um, and do research and writing. 
and so that was sort of the path I was looking to pursue. I moved to California with my college boyfriend um, who was starting a doctoral program at UC Santa Cruz and thought that it would be a great opportunity to establish residency and get cheaper graduate study. Um, and then, you know, ended up pursuing wine instead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I guess I did graduate school too, but it was, it was a completely different shift by then. Different order of things, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned kind of wine as starting off almost as a joke, as like a, you know, I, I don't, you know. So tell me about the initial work and what attracted you to the work as you started to get into wine. Uh, so working in a tasting room was a fantastic experience. I, um, Bonnie Doon was such a creative place from uh, a lot of different perspectives. The wine labels, he's famous for those, but the wine as well was hugely creative. Um, I was exposed to so many different winemaking practices, styles, grape varieties. Um, gosh, some of the crazy Italian stuff that we did was um, really unique. So it was uh, intellectually stimulating always. Plus it was a lot of fun. Um, we had a very busy tasting room in those days and a large staff of people from all different walks of life, you know, uh, retirees and um, we had a full-time uh, pharmaceutical chemist who just would come one day a week on the weekends for, uh, he'd work for wine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just a really unique group of people. So it was a fun environment. It was fast paced. You're always busy, but you're always learning. So speaking of learning, tell me about learning wine. Obviously it's a big topic. So tell me about starting to understand it and, and what, what, again, kind of what pushed you to learn more about it? Um, I think that the, the, concept of being able to perceive aromas that resembled, um, you know, flavors and aromas that you pick up in other foods and uh, stuff was kind of fascinating. That was the initial thing that really drew me into it, was trying to um, teach my palate and learn how to um, detect differences between wines and, and describe them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'd had some wines that would be like, a, I think at one point Randall made a Raposo. So you get like all the flavors from raisins in a wine that's not high alcohol and sweet. It was um, full of complexity. Uh, and that was, that was just um, exciting and kind of open-ended. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a lot of friends at the time who were training to become sommelier. I joined a couple of tasting groups where I was tasting predominantly with people who are now psalms, most of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, it was an area where I could just keep learning and then getting to the next phase of learning how to attribute qualities to the grape growing mm -hmm. and the region it came from and um, learning about the different growing regions around the world, just sort of, um, a great way to to take something that's very simple in one respect <laughs> right and expand it exponentially and I do I love travel I love um, food so all of these things kind of come together in the wine industry so obviously Bonnie Dune is a pretty pretty uh, highly thought of and highly sought after place tell me about 
when you were there, did you kind of understand the, the gravity of the place you were working at? I did and I didn't. Um, I mean, for the first couple of years that I was working there, I was mostly in the tasting room just having fun. <laughs> I, I didn't, I don't think I realized quite how unique it was in comparison to other places and other tasting room scenes. Um, I did go wine tasting. I went up to Sonoma County and Napa County and did some tasting tours. I came up to Oregon and did a wine tasting trip. Um, I still, you know, my family's been in Oregon through this entire time, so I was up there pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it took some of the shifts at Bonnie Dune, like he went through some major transitions, a brand sale where we dropped from nearly half a million case production down to 30,000 case production um, in, you know, a matter of moments. <laughs> um, that kind of made it more obvious what a unique place it was, mm -hmm. right? That, mm -hmm. that you never knew what was gonna happen, you're always on your toes. You, managed, you mentioned kind of getting into full-time work and uh, have, uh, handling a wine club. Tell me about that kind of challenge. What's, what's it like handling a wine club of that size? Um, it was extremely challenging. Uh, I think that as with most things where you rely heavily on technology and software, um, that aspect was uh, at times incredibly frustrating. Um, this was quite a few years ago too, so the technology that was out there was perhaps a lot less user-friendly than it is now. I had a huge database of member information, and in order to use it effectively, I had to learn um, access database management, export everything, and then run a million queries to make sure that I was using accurate data before I did a mail merge and sent out information to clients and, and all of that. So I mean, Technology was a, was a hang up and then just the volume of customer service mm -hmm. um, entailed in that was also pretty intense. When I first started there, we had, I think, um, two people answering phones and um, we just couldn't keep up with it. You know, club shipment would go out and everyone's calling to update their credit card information or um, calling to cancel because they saw a bill, a charge went through and they'd forgotten to cancel. And so it was just um, the volume of, of customer service was incredible. We had to expand our department um, at that time and that helped tremendously. But we also did a lot like redesigning our website um, to have a members area so that people could do certain updates and things themselves. Again, it was um, fairly cutting edge for the time. <laughs> now I think probably every software out there that people use for wine club management is allows a certain level of um, clients managing their own accounts mm -hmm. and whatnot. What did you What did you learn during those those years about what sells wine? What were people excited about? Why did people buy the wines they bought? That's a good question. Uh, obviously, so in the tasting room environment, people are buying wines that they enjoy and they like the taste of. Um, in outside of that, it was also more experiential. Like if they were having a fun time, then they would buy more wine. Um, they would enjoy the wine more. Um, and I think one thing that people liked at Bonnie Dune and it might be sort of self-selecting, right? That was a unique environment. People 
sort of often knew the brand a little bit before they came. Um, they liked the quirkiness of it. They liked that there was always something unique. And so some of the stranger wines, or I wouldn't say strange, because the wines themselves weren't strange, but they were unusual. Mm -hmm. The more unusual wines mm -hmm. would be very popular in the tasting room, where you could expose people to something and they got the opportunity to try it before they bought it. Um, direct sales was, um, you know, my entire experience mm -hmm. at Bonnie Dune. So I've since probably developed more understanding of what goes into wine sales and other um, uh, wine systems, right? But um, <clears throat> there, at least, I think it was, I would say more that people actually really enjoyed finding something that was a little bit different. Mm -hmm but still close enough to what they were familiar with that they could, um, they felt okay trying it and, and, and going in open-minded to liking it. So when the time came that you were heading, you decided to head on to the next thing, what, why, why UC Davis and what were you thinking about as sort of the next thing for you at that point? Well, um, when I was at Bonnie Dune, Randall was getting more and more deeply involved in biodynamic farming. At, the, at his own vineyard, the Cuddles Volo Vineyard. And um, he would invite the staff to go and um, take part in certain practices, like we'd grind crystals to fill the cow horns and I got to go down and do tours of the vineyard and see their compost making practices. And um, the viticulturist down there, Nadine, uh, she actually ended up mm -hmm. working up here in Oregon. Um, for a good time. She, uh, she was really excited describing things like planting um, native plants for windbreaks that would draw pollinators and, and all of these practices that kind of meshed with the agroecology background that I'd had in, in college. Mm -hmm. um, and so I knew that I wanted to do viticulture. I, that was what sort of drove me to find it and I was really motivated by concepts of sustainable farming. Um, I felt at the time that Davis would be the best school to get a really strong scientific foundation that I could bring into um, sustainable farming so it would be um, science-driven sustainability which meshes better with my background and my interests and experience. Um, as opposed to other pathways that, you know, also work. <laughs> um, but that was, that was my main motivation for going to Davis. I, this, they had such a strong reputation. And then Randall had also gone to Davis. And uh, so I was able to get him to write my letter of recommendation. <laughs> and that helped too. <laughs> what was the experience like there for you? Um, I loved it. I, um... It was kind of a, an odd experience in that I, um, I, after, I went in as a second back, actually, and spent a year doing that. And while I was doing that, I met Dave Smart, um, who ended up becoming my PI. And he did a presentation where he ex described that he had funding for a graduate student to do research in Spain. And so I <laughs> immediately jumped on that opportunity and went and talked with him. And, and by the next year, I was in the graduate program. But I would spend all my summers during grad school in Spain 
um, doing research at a beautiful winery there, um, Ferrer Bobet, um, looking at uh, water stress in complex slopes, vineyards. And uh, so my experience in that sense was a little bit different because I was never really constantly in Davis. Mm -hmm. I, I was very sep separated from it for long chunks of time and then I would go back and be enmeshed in it during the school year. And while I was doing all of that, I met my husband abroad in Spain and um, ended up having, you know, my life turned upside down yet again. <laughs> um, so I don't know, I guess, I guess it was, um, it was a really pivotal time for me in a lot of respects. I learned a lot and um, really I look at Dave, Davis is having set sort of a framework and a foundation for all that I've been able to learn since. You were excited about viticulture at the time you went in, but it didn't, you, you hadn't really studied it or, or really been involved in it yet at that point. Was there, was it what you expected? Was, the, was viticulture what you expected it to be? Um, you know, my research in Spain was very similar to my research experiences previously, as in extremely challenging. What can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> Field work is just like that. And so in that respect, it was exactly what I anticipated. I think that I'm always still be being challenged by what viticulture is in reality, and, um, and it's ever-evolving, uh, depending on your employer, your clients, the vineyards you're, that you're working with, um, your coworkers, all of those things impact what your role actually is. And it, that can evolve and change over time. So, so at this point you've, you've been in Spain, you've met your, met your now husband, you're, you're, you're coming up at the end of your program there. What were you thinking about as your next step and what was your next step? Um, I had thought that coming out of grad school, my next step would be um, a, a year or two of internships um, until I'd have some actual experience under my belt to get a real job. <laughs> and uh, so I started applying for internships for the summer um, and actually um, I don't remember which internship it was that I was, I mean, how many I applied for, but I was um, interviewing for one internship and the owner turned to me and said, you know, I think you need to take my other open position, which is a viticulturist. So I heard that and basically said yes, <laughs> without necessarily doing all my research. <laughs> um, I... I negotiated that I would be able to still have like a day off every um, every week to work on my thesis, and uh, he agreed to that. Um, and so I thought that I had really negotiated a great a great deal, but the reality was that the workload was enough that having time to work on a thesis just was not feasible. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I, in that, I took that role and it ended up being um, a very good learning experience and not always in a fun way. Um, that was Hill Wine Company, 
which has been um, quite a bit in the news at one time or another. Um, while I was working there, they went through, um, that's, what can I say? <laughs> um, there were financial challenges and some of the choices that the owner made in order to meet those financial challenges may not always have been above board. He actually, I think, um, served some jail time at one point for some, some of the stuff. And he was, there were big articles in the New York Times about um, problems that he ran into with the TTB and uh, labeling laws and a lot of those things. So it was, um, it was a great learning experience <laughs> and I felt very fortunate when things um, sort of imploded there that I met again with, I met great people through that process and I ended up being, um, I'll say rescued <laughs> by uh, Bacchus Vineyard Management. Uh, there were some connections, there were some people working at Hill trying to get through some of the challenges there and um, who had friends at Bacchus. Um, Glenn Alexander, the owner of Bacchus, um, spoke with his friend and based on their conversation just said, okay, we'll hire her. I never even had an interview. <laughs> I think I spoke to one person from the company and met another. And, um, and when I, it actually turned out I was hired retroactively by a week because they couldn't pay me. <laughs> so I, it worked out very much in my favor. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up having a great team at Bacchus that uh, most of whom I still work with now because we all transitioned to Atlas um, together. I think Bacchus was one of the earlier um, acquisitions that Atlas made. And where, where was Bacchus based? Uh, out of Sonoma County, Windsor just north of Santa Rosa. <clears throat> so that's an interesting transition now, working, going from working for a place to working for vineyard management. Tell me what that transition was like and did you enjoy the work? Yeah, um, vineyard management is a little bit, in my experience, it's been a little bit chaotic. Um, but, you know, I was coming from a certain amount of chaos <laughs> as well, so maybe that says something about me. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I do like a challenge. And, um, you know, the, the, it's got a customer service element. Mm -hmm. So my background at Bonnie Dune applied pretty neatly to that. Um, but uh, the customer service is with a smaller group of clientele that you develop a stronger relationship with. So I, I liked that aspect a lot. Um, I still really enjoy working with clients and helping them achieve their goals and getting to know them as individuals. Um, you meet some pretty incredible people that way. Um, but I did find vineyard management at the time. I was being, I was both a, a viticulturist and a vineyard manager. I wore lots and lots of hats. I was maybe borderline accountant. I did all the budgeting. Um, it, it was pretty intense. And the working hours were day and night, mm -hmm. and also very intense. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the the agricultural work week back then was 60 hours before overtime, mm -hmm. 
in California, you know, a 10 hour work day. And that meant if you were a manager that you were working those 60 hours plus X, Y, Z hours on top of that, preparing and planning and organizing and talking with people and coordinating um, loads and loads of logistics. And at that point in my life, that was fine. Um, but it uh, became far more challenging when I had my son, <laughs> which fortunately by that time I had um, transitioned to Atlas and was solely a viticulturist um, with an expectation closer to, you know, like a 40 hour work week, which was, um, I don't know if I could have done it otherwise. Um, and a lot of people who work in vineyard management on that scale, um, we were a small company that was growing and getting bigger and bigger. And to function on that scale, you do have to put in just loads and loads of effort, you, um, time and effort. I think a lot of people who try to work in those environments end up with burnout. Mm -hmm. So um, I also consider myself fortunate that I made a transition. Um, at the right time mm -hmm. for that. So let's talk about the time, the time with Bacchus a little bit. What was the work you were doing and, and how, how did you kind of, how did you kind of get to understand what you needed to do and how to do it? Um, so what I was, and it's still the case with, with vineyard management, what you do varies a lot through the year. It's completely seasonally driven. Um, you know, the winters are when you try to clean up projects and, and prepare and plan. And then as soon as the grapevines start to grow, it's akin to triage, I think, until, until the grapes are off the vine mm. and things settle down again for the next winter. Um, winters are never long enough. <laughs> um, and, and that's just sort of the way it goes. But what you are doing during the, uh, during the growing season, uh, at Bacchus, it was mixed. Again, I wore so many different hats that any given day, it could be a number of different things. I might be out doing um, teaching, training my, my scouts um, how to detect mildew, how to um, take leaf water potential measurements, um, uh, trying to fi find and hire staff, um, all of that. Or I might be meeting a crew and showing them thinning protocols or um, running chemicals out for a spray, um, writing work orders for sprays, doing pesticide safety training, um, all of those things. And, it, and that's part of the challenge of it is that you have to constantly be juggling your priorities um, I think that I learned pretty quickly um, that, you know, things like spray activities are, are high priority. There's a safety risk for people. There's um, a quality control risk for the fruit. Um, but then getting paid is also a priority. So things like um, invoicing and checking the invoices and making sure they're accurate before they get sent out, all of those things. Um, it was always a, a juggle to make sure that those things happened 
in a timely fashion and with the right level of quality control, um, but that things kept running in the vineyard too. Tell me about the, the clients at that point. What were, the, what were their sort of expectations of the work you would do and what, how, did you, how did you sort of come to understand what they wanted from you and how to do it? Hmm. You think about that. Uh, it's a challenging question. I think um, a lot of that depended on how they would interact with our team because there were, I'll say, three or four people at the company that would have direct client interactions. And each client would have slightly different expectations of what the roles of those different individuals would be. Um, we would shuffle responsibilities a certain amount among us. We worked really tightly as a team um, in order to ensure that, you know, those clients' needs were being met, but that they were able to work with somebody that they preferred to work with as well. Um, certain relationships would at times become strained, and then you, so you'd shift who was handling more of the communication there. Um, but for the most part, I think my role was always more of the viticulturist in the arrangement, and the, the others were more the managers. So if it was logistics-related issues or, or a planning, um, they'd be handled primarily by, by the others in my group. Mm -hmm. And um, if it was more um, you know, fruit quality, crop estimation, water stress, all of those things, then it, it would land more on me. Um, but I think... I learned because my team and I learned together. So it's hard to say that I figured out what every client needed and what they wanted. It was more that as a group, we would discover what was necessary mm -hmm. and what worked best for each, for each situation. So tell me about the, the transition then from Bacchus into Atlas when it, when it was acquired. Um, how did the transition go and how did your role evolve? Um, well, Let's see, the, uh, when I came to Atlas, uh, it was still a little uncertain whether the acquisition was gonna happen or not. Actually, I, I, I made this shift just before the acquisition took place. And so um, they, I think, had a recommendation. Well, I know. I know that my colleague had referred me to them and they interviewed me. They didn't actually have a position for a viticulturist at the time, but they hired me based on that recommendation in the interview. They decided that um, one thing I love about Atlas is that they really love to promote talent. They mm -hmm. like to bring in talented people and then f work with them to find a role that they'll fill well um, and take advantage of people's strengths. Um, so I ended up becoming part of their viticulture team. They, they, um, had me reporting to our director of viticulture, Francisco Araujo, whereas previously, um, I think the viticulturists had reported directly to vineyard managers. And so that was a, a shift from what was expected and ended up being, um, working out quite well for me in the sense that 
I learned how, better how to differentiate my priorities in viticultural needs versus what I'd done before as a vineyard manager and having my hands in everything, mm -hmm. having to, to juggle always. I was able to focus my priorities a lot more in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Francisco is another person that I've learned so much from. He's, he ended up becoming a really great mentor for me. So that helped as well. And for the first time in my career, I was not just a viticulturist trying to figure it all out on my own, but I was part of a viticultural team. Um, that was something that I, I really enjoyed. Um, usually at smaller companies and, and at wineries and that sort of thing, you as a viticulturist are expected to be an expert on everything all the time. And uh, your only opportunities for out learning are by um, working outside of your company and working within the industry to learn. So continuing education opportunities and making friends and you know um, meeting with friends and, and discussing problems that way. But in this case, it was the first time where I could actually discuss in great depth mm -hmm. specific situations. We could walk the vineyard together and look at things and. Um, bounce ideas off each other. It's a, a great environment for learning. And shortly after I arrived at Atlas, I, I found out that I was pregnant. So um, it made a big shift. I ended up that my first year at Atlas um, missing harvest because I was um, on maternity leave. So um, I think that part was super scary at first because I'd just changed jobs. So I didn't have job protection and I didn't know how the folks at Atlas were going to take it. Um, but they were hugely supportive. Mm -hmm. So that, um, you know, one of those moments when you're, again, very fortunate, you land in the right place with the right people. Mm -hmm. um, and so that had an impact on how my career shifted there as well, in that, um, you know, I didn't work that harvest and I haven't had direct involvement in harvest since. Mostly it's more from a quality control standpoint and um, maturity analysis, those sorts of elements. Um, I'm able to focus more still on the viticulture during a time of year when most people are, um, it's all hands on deck to get the food off the vine. Mm -hmm. So um, in that respect too, it, it's been um, pretty fascinating because we're able to do things like virus surveys and dead vine counts and, and things that um, at that time of year are the best time of year to do it, but you're usually so caught up in harvest in most smaller companies that those things fall through the cracks. So, so give me an idea now in the new role, you mentioned before kind of how kind of chaotic and triage your job was. Mm -hmm. In this role, tell me a bit more about what your year looks like and what the sort of the focuses are. Yeah, so um, I, and the winter is still the same. Um, I use a lot of that time for keeping up with continuing, edu continuing education um, and also uh, strategic planning, planning out um, what things we're going to address that year and where I can make improvements in our processes from the previous season. Um, any hiring needs, that's the time of year when we focus on that. Um, and then pretty much 
starting in around March, um, the focus becomes much more on um, pest management and the fungicide programs, fertilization, and getting things ready to go for the season. Um, let's see, I think that the, um, the growing season, we have very specific time frame that's all driven by the phenology of the grapevine. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, bud break is a very important period of time because that's your, your start point for the season. And then, um, and at that point, I'm focused very much on weed management, um, certain pests that we, we deal with at that time. And then we shift into our, our crop uh, yield estimate efforts. So that's a big piece of what we do all season at various stages. Um, we will do cluster counts after we sucker. We do uh, lag phase weights um, just before verasion. Um, we do set assessments post bloom. So everything is driven by the season and, uh, and the grapevines. Mm -hmm. So at what point did coming back to Oregon become part of the part of the plan? Um, let's see. I'd always had it in the back of my mind as a possibility. Um, the it was very easy to stay in California um, in the sense that there are a lot more jobs down there for the, the role that I'm, that I'm kind of grown into that I, and what I enjoy doing. Um, and I liked where I was, so it was hard to see making a move, but I always kind of had a desire to get back closer to my family. And I love the Oregon wine industry, like, Pinot Noir a lot, um, so I actually really enjoy the the um, the vineyards, the the environment, and the wine, mm -hmm. and the and all of that, the culture. Um, but it was last year when um, the senior viticulturist for the Oregon region left Atlas, and I um, I had just learned that my dad was fighting cancer. And so all of those um, things sort of lined up together. It felt like it was meant to be. Um, and I got to stay at my same company. I didn't have to go work. I think the uh, other bigger employer in, in vineyard management um, up here is RP. And I, they're our biggest competitor. So I'd always um, worried that if I went up to Oregon, I'd end up working against my team instead of working with my team. Um, which, you know, it's not that bad in terms of the competition between the companies or anything, but I have a, I have a very strong loyalty to mm -hmm. the people I work for mm -hmm. and work with. And so this was just about a perfect opportunity to come up and, and do all of that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the only hardship in that decision was the timeline. Well, that's that's one of two. And the other one was that I didn't get to keep working with Carl, who left and I replaced. <laughs> um, because I, I've really enjoyed working with him up until that point. Um, he actually has been uh, really wonderful in welcoming me up here into this industry and kind of 
introducing me to people and guiding me through um, some of the challenges and of learning the differences in the way things are done up here versus the way they're done in California. You mentioned the timeline. The timeline. Challenge. Yeah, so uh, I think Carl, uh, I found out that Carl was leaving in May and I had to move my family to be here in June. Um, so that was pretty, pretty intense. Um, I, we, we also um, had to buy a house, find a, you know, so I, I had to find two places to live, one for while we got up here and then had to buy a home as well. So we ended up moving up uh, the 11th of June and then moving into our new home on like the first, first of July. So it was, it was a very challenging timeline. <laughs> So at that point, what was your what were your impressions and what was your familiarity with the Oregon wine industry? Um, so let's see. I had um, I think I mentioned I'd been up and done some wine tasting in the past, and um, I had also had some involvement with our farming operations up here before I made the transition. Um, you know, Atlas has grown up in Oregon, but they started quite small. And um, at those earlier stages, um, they we did a lot of the viticulture from our California hub, what could be done, working with, um, you know, interns or vit techs up here who would report to viticulture down there. And we'd, we'd work on um, figuring everything out. So I made a, at least one trip a year up here over those years, um, sometimes twice. And so I did have, you know, some knowledge of the team up here, um, some knowledge of a few of the vineyards. Uh, Atlas at the time were involved with some properties directly as um, at least part owners. So those properties were the ones that I was more familiar with when I would come up here, they were where I'd put more of my attention. Um, and so, you know, we're still farming those properties now, which is great. I've got, um, uh, I find that the way that I assimilate new properties personally is, uh, it takes a little bit of a process. Um, I, I need a framework before information starts to actually have a place to go. Um, and so it's a very organic process of assimilation to, to, to grow knowledge of a site. Um, it really helped to have some framework already in place when I made that transition, mm -hmm. um, a context for all the information. Mm -hmm. But it was also, you know, a, a challenge because the rest of the properties were all new to me. Mm -hmm. um, and Atlas is still in a, on a growth trajectory. So, this past season, they acquired New Gen Vineyard Management, mm -hmm. and we added again another round of new properties. So that's this has been a unique challenge for me in that, you know, normally I've stayed with a company for a number of years, and you know every year you add a couple new ranches, a few new ranches, and in the context of a number of sites that you already are very familiar with and know quite well adding in a few more each year is not that challenging, mm -hmm. but taking on large numbers of new sites all at once is, is hard. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that, that has been probably the biggest challenge with coming up here.
there have been others. Um, our team was pretty light staffed when I arrived, so I've been building that since I arrived all, as well, trying to um, get our team up to the size that is needed to, and with the right people, to be able to um, to grow the viticultural aspect of what we're doing here to meet sort of the standards that I had from our California office. Mm -hmm. There's also, um, you talked a lot about client expectations and I've found that that is a lot less clear cut up here as well. Um, I think that, you know, the industry is in some respects a little bit newer um, and so some of the roles are not as clearly defined. And, um, and also just the scale that we had been up here. Um, we're growing more now and so it makes sense to departmentalize things more. But um, at a smaller scale, there was a lot more overlap, more similar to what things were like where I was at, at Bacchus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's been a bit of a shift as well in trying to um, work towards the goal of a, a more de departmentalized, systematic approach where we can provide, you know, the same services to all of our clients and have um, expectations that we can, um, you know, this kind of report is going to come out at this point in the season and that kind of report is going to come out at this other point in the season um, while still addressing, you know, all of our clients' sort of different expectations of what our department will provide for them. Um, there are a lot of vineyard managers up here who are sort of that in between a viticulturist and a vineyard manager. They have a lot of viticultural knowledge and they're used to sort of having to do it on their own, right? Um, and so I think that some people have an expectation when they meet me and, oh, here's your new viticulturist. They're like, okay, so you're going to be out here telling the crew what to do. Um, you're going to be scheduling the spray and when the tractor's going to arrive and all of that. And um, I try to avoid uh, being the person responsible for those things. We have the managers to do that. Um, and it's a different skill set to be really good at logistics than it is to be able to go in, walk a vineyard and figure out, you know, what we can do to make it better and um, how to, what a certain, diagnose problems and, and propose solutions, those sorts of things. So um, trying to, to, I guess, find ways to, what's the phrase they use? Stay in my lane <laughs> um, and, and focus on what I'm good at. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. That was going to be my next question. Tell me about getting to know a site and diagnosing a site. So if you're introduced to a new place, what are you looking for and how long does it take you to feel comfortable sort of understanding where it's at and knowing what it needs? I think I'm, I'm uh, still learning that to a certain extent. I mean, uh, I think I mentioned because of the challenge of having so many different sites, I feel like that transition is taking longer than I'm used to it taking. Um, but where I have um, 
And then there's also the client expectations aspect. So some clients are, um, they want me to be very involved right off the get-go. And in those cases, I'm there more, and it does help me to assimilate those sites faster, right? In other cases, uh, I think that I use a lot more technology um, and other aspects to determine where I need to spend my time and my focus to learn sites. Um, I have a, t a staff that I work with very tightly so that they are more often my eyes in the field. I've developed certain scouting protocols and, and systems for like what I need them looking for at what times of year, what information I need back as a bare minimum, like say everything looks fine, I still need to know, you know, what percent bloom are we at, what, um, how tall is the canopy, are the wires in place, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. So yeah, it's all looking great, but how is it looking right now? Um, and so those, those things really help. Um, and then I also, we, we do a lot of NDVI imagery um, and I use that for a number of different purposes through the season. It also directs me to potential problem spots and areas where I need to focus more attention. And then the whole diagnostics aspect there, there you can't get that. I mean, the technology very much helps, but there's a certain element to seeing things with your own eyes mm -hmm. that is hugely necessary because everything that you see needs to be in a context. You look at photos, you're seeing one cluster or two clusters. That doesn't tell you very much unless it's in the context. Some diseases present with leaf symptoms. Um, and so you might get fruit symptoms Without the leaf symptom, they are one thing. If they do also have the leaf symptom, then there's something else. Um, and that is all something that takes time and experience to, to develop um, the diagnostic skill. So um, I use uh, my staff primarily as a starting point for, for um, determining where I need to focus more of my own energy. And then clients also. We have a lot of clients here who have, um, who are very involved in farming their properties and they know their ranches very well. Mm -hmm. um, those are actually some of the best to work with because they can say, you know, I'm, there's an issue going on over here in this block and I don't know what it is. Um, and that is always very helpful because then I can put time and energy into figuring that out for them. Um, and then we look at yields and, and, and listen to feedback from wineries and winemakers. Um, that can be also hugely informative of, of you know, finding a, a problem and fixing it. Um, if there's a problem with ripening or if they have um, high potassium levels in the must and um, acidity issues, um, all of those can, can focus our attention on uh, what's going on at that vineyard and, and um, do we need to address it with a different fertilization program or um, water, uh, you know, in some of our irrigated sites, is it, could we achieve better results with a different irrigation strategy, um, all of those things. 
I know your Oregon viticulture experience is still still fairly new and recent, but I'm curious, uh, so far, is there a big difference farming grapes in Oregon versus farming grapes in California? Um, yes and no. Grapes are grapes. <laughs> they do all the same things in, in, uh, in most places, but there's a lot of um, practices that are a little bit different. The industry, there's a culture to the industry, I'll say. Um, there's a lot more dry farmed properties up here. Um, a lot, a large number of organic and biodynamic. I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I farmed a lot of organic sites in California too. I'm just talking about percentages, um, proportionally speaking. Um, the live certification program. A lot of our clients are involved in the live certification program. So it's, um, I've, I've had to adapt some of my practices to be able to um, line up better with their specific requirements for those programs. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, it's still farming grapes. And they are, you know, have a lot of more predictable things that are different, not because um, not because grapes are different here, but because the environmental conditions are slightly different. Mm -hmm. But if you put grapes in California under the same environmental conditions, you'd have the same things that you'd have to work with. So, and having farmed in Sonoma County um, really helps mm -hmm. also because it's a little bit more similar, climatically speaking. Again, different, but... <laughs> but um, more similar and more of the same varieties, a lot more Pinot Noir and Chardonnay there. Um, I will say one thing I have noticed that is different about the Oregon wine industry is that there's a um, much stronger sense of collaboration among uh, growers and winemakers as well. Um, but you know, more of my experiences with growers. I've joined a number of different growers groups. Um, I go to Patty Skin Kisses Vit Tech meetings and um, people are willing to share information. They're not afraid of, um, I don't know, um, they're not as focused on privacy and proprietary um, stuff. So, so there is, and, and people will share things like you know, somebody's tractor breaks down and another one of our clients will be fine with loaning a tractor to their, to their neighbor. Um, so that, that is kind of nice to see. I've really enjoyed that aspect of, um, of the way things are done up here. Uh, one thing that, I mean, there are a number of things that are just oddly different um, and it's more just the way they've been done um, historically, but things like harvest being into buckets instead of into bins. Um, I, it's one of the things that makes me glad I'm not a vineyard manager anymore because I can't imagine having to tick off every bucket. Um, I really liked how picks in California were, collab were team oriented. So the team gets still incentivized pay based on yields, but the team gets, you know, each player on that team gets an equal part of the pie, so to speak. And um, I don't know, I always felt like you saw people working together really nicely under those conditions. Um, and it's less work on the vineyard manager. Mm -hmm. 
I know one of the things that's unique unique to Oregon versus California is obviously yield size and expectations. So does that change your approach in any way, looking at yields that are so much smaller? Yeah, that's actually something I've been um, thinking about a lot right now because I've been putting out all my yield estimates. And I have never in the past been in a situation where people are so anxious to get their yield estimates as quickly as possible because they're waiting to make all of their thinning decisions until they've got the yield estimates in front of them. Um, in California, the purpose of yield estimates is to know how many bins to have there and you know the winery to know what size tank they need and, and manage, expe you know, manage expectations. Whereas here it's they're they're making critical decisions to to hit target yields and stuff based on those estimates which makes the estimates a little bit more frightening too in that um there's less room for error and estimates are always an estimate mm -hmm. so um you kind of need to put more time and effort into them but you have less time to do it mm -hmm. <laughs> um i think that i have never been asked before uh, for a thinning protocol to get down to less than one cluster per shoot. Um, I, it's mind-boggling to me that any winemaker would want you to drop down to less than one cluster per shoot, barring, you know, maybe short shoot, mm -hmm. you know, weak plants, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so a lot of our thinning protocols in California are driven more by, by things like fine health and um, some sort of standard practice. They do a lot more thinning before veration, uh, like fruit, fruit thinning before veration, just based on standard practices. Um, and then what, the, what yields you get are the yields you get after that. Um, or what, you know, the winemaker has found that works for that block. There's a lot of that as well. And so, you know, they do a one, two, one, two, because that's what they always do. And so those decisions are made far earlier in the season, not on the fly after, as after lag phase. <clears throat> um, so yeah, that's been, that's been a really big eye-opener for me. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, Patty Skinkis is doing her um, crop load study. I, I am hopeful that that might influence people over time to... Um, to be open-minded to the idea of addressing crop load uh, from a different standpoint. But as of right now, that there's a lot of perception that um, certain target yields are what you can do to achieve quality fruit. And a lot of fruit is put on the ground in pursuit of that. You mentioned obviously the kind of the off season is continuing education and, and, and things like that. Tell me about how often are new challenges presented, being presented to you and how, how often are you having to learn or relearn a technique for pest management or for something like that? Um, I feel like it's pretty much constant. It's one of the things I really enjoy about what I do is that you never stop learning. It never gets boring. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the industry is always shifting. Right now, everyone's focusing on climate change and um, 
I think the word of the year has been resiliency, trying to make sure that we are doing everything possible to be able to respond quickly to seasonal shifts, um, big weather events, um, all of these things. These are unique challenges that, you know, yeah, we used to have heat waves, but now we're gonna have a frost and then a heat wave and then hail. <laughs> so, you know, um, trying to, to figure out um, those elements, it, it's, it's pretty intense. Um, and then, you know, from a pest control perspective, that's an area that I've put a lot of time and energy into um, in my career. And resistance management um, and integrated pest management, which are all integrated, right? Um, and that, there's always more to learn. There's always more research being done. There's always new products on the market. So um, again, there's always more to know and more to learn. But the context, the framework, doesn't change as much, right? Um, our biggest um, disease pressure every year, the thing we focus on the most is uh, mildew prevention, powdery mildew prevention. And if it weren't for powdery mildew, um, I think our, our pest management would have a completely different approach and focus, right? Um, almost everything on the market for powdery mildew management is preventative. So you have a set system of sprays that, yeah, you might go a little bit longer in between intervals in a low pressure year and a little bit shorter between intervals in a high, pr high pressure year. But um, if you don't protect your vines against powdery mildew, you'll eventually get powdery mildew. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that framework stays the same from one year to the next, and then we just have to work within the context of, again, new products, resistance issues, um, and then the sustainable element, which is that we learn more about the chemi chemistries that we use over time. And when new information comes to light, you have to adapt to that. Um, new information about human toxicities, for example. Um, it would be great if all of these products, we knew all of that about every single product, every single time, the day it was first released and available. And they do a lot of testing. Um, you know, the FDA, or the EPA, sorry. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that those products, when they are released, they know their risk factors. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't still learn new things down the road and um, impacts on non-target pests, for example, or non-pest um, beneficial insects, those sorts of things, that there's always new information coming out. And so you have to adapt what you're doing to those. Continuing education is a huge part of what I do. Mm -hmm. So you talked a little bit about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon. Uh, what does the industry look like to you and where is it going? Well, um, I think I've mentioned the, the, that the, I've noticed a lot of collaboration in the industry up here. Um, people are doing it because they're passionate about what they're doing. They love what they do. They love wine. Um, I really enjoy that aspect of the Oregon wine industry. Um, we have a lot more um, small growers up here who are very involved with their farms. Um, 
not saying that we don't, again, we, we have those in California too, uh, but proportionally speaking, I see a lot more uh, small properties that are owned by people who are involved in the farming themselves and um, maybe even live on site. Um, and that, that I hope won't change fast. I, I really enjoy that element of it. Um, in terms of where the industry is going, I don't know that I've been here long enough to formulate an opinion on that. Um, the wine is fantastic already. There's been a huge focus on quality in wine um, over the last decades in Oregon, right? And I think that um, more and more of the world has recognized that, they, um, that there are top quality wines produced in this growing region. Um, it'll be interesting to see how things go from a like wine marketing standpoint and how they continue to build the Oregon brand, so to speak, Willamette Valley brand. Um, in that uh, there are a lot of different ways it could go, right? And it is challenging to um, <clears throat> to come up with a strategy that will promote um, the region and not just um, a specific winery or a specific wine style. Um, one thing I think we're gonna see is just, unfortunately induced by climate change, there may be some shifts in stylistically how wines are made here and what their flavor profiles end up being. Um, and that might drive some shifts in the way it needs to be marketed as well, right? <clears throat> so I think that um, the biggest challenge is going to be uh, adaptability. The industry up here is still growing, it's still learning, and, it, and for all of us we're going to have to be adaptable to what happens. So I, you took kind of an interesting path uh, into viticulture side coming from the coming from the sales and marketing side. So I'm curious, now that you're on the vineyard side, do you find yourself with a different connection to wine or a different connection to the, to the, the wines you drink? I think I am more of a vineyard appreciator than a wine appreciator at this point in my, in my life. Um, I still love wine and I drink wine, but I'm more motivated by by the process of, of growing than this, um, you know, my early interest in the discovery of, of training my palate and learning how to appreciate wine and, and the food and wine and travel element of all of it. Um, I think I'm, I'm much more intellectually stimulated by things like developing the best pest management strategy and adapting to resistance issues and, um, sustainable practices, selecting the right um, cover crop programs, do we till or not till, um, carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas emissions, all those things um, that my husband finds incredibly boring are the things that, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, could, um, I could study them for the rest of my life and never get bored. So. 
Well, on that note, what is coming next for you? What are you looking ahead to, either personally or professionally, that has you excited? Um, well, I feel like I'm, I'm still in the middle of my transition up here. So in terms of what's next, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, getting to a point where I am thinking more about what's next and, and less focused on the here and now and, and, um, and assimilating. I am looking forward to being more involved with our sustainable practices and the decisions that are made in that respect. Um, in California, I was the person who initially um, got all of our vineyards certified sustainable under the CSWA certification. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we had a lot of support for that process. Through, we, I couldn't have done it on my own, but I, I was the person that um, kind of pushed pushed it as a company that we that we go to the extra effort of certifying all of our ranches and then um, and then adapting greater and greater sustainability into what we do um, all the time. I think um, I'm hopeful that my role I can get back to focusing more on that element as I solidify um, the, the like processes and, and systems and things for, for what I'm doing here. Uh, last question for you. Uh, if you if someone were to ask you for words of advice or wisdom about entering the wine industry, what would you tell them? Hmm. You know, I think that I'd probably start by asking them some questions about what their, what their interests in the wine industry are. Mm -hmm. um, for example, when I'm interviewing people for um, the viticulture department, I qu usually quiz them a lot to figure out if they are actually interested in science and plants um, and not just interested in winemaking and, and wine. Um, that's, that is the main draw into the industry, right? Although there are others, I haven't I've had an intern this year who's, you know, from a fifth generation farming family, he's been very involved in farming um, and they're moving into grapes as a crop. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to learn more about mm -hmm. grapes um, to support his family's business. But overall, um, you know, a lot of people are drawn into this, like I was through the wine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so helping them to figure out what they're really most interested in is, is I think, one of the better elements of it. But um, I got some good advice when I was looking at all of this, and I think it still holds, which is that the more you get an opportunity to explore different areas within the industry before you settle on something, um, the better you'll be able to find a job that you love because the one thing about this industry is that all of the roles that I've come across in it, winemaker, viticulturist, vineyard manager, they're all a lot of work. They're not a way to get rich quick and um, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it won't be worth it. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? Oh, gosh. Um, 
Let's see. I don't think so. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground and <laughs> I, um, I think I'm reaching the capacity of what my brain is able to, to speak coherently about. So. Good, we don't want to cross that line. That's no. good, that's good, excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your story with us, uh, sharing this beautiful spot with us. This has been truly nice to, a nice way to spend the day. So thank we'll you. go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you very awesome. much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.